All right, chapter four of Ephesians. We are transitioning from the portion of Ephesians in chapters one, two, and three that talks about our identity, who we are, the theological aspects, to now the practical application side. So as we look at chapters four, five, and six, we must remember, and I will do my best to remind you every single time, that how we behave is based on who we are. If you start trying to lay a list of do's and don'ts before you without understanding who you are and your identity in Christ, it turns into a legalistic box checking system with a weight that you cannot bear. So if you are a pretender, if you pretend to be a Christian and you're really not a Christian, you really don't have the Holy Spirit living within you, then the list of do's and don'ts adds weight and stress and anxiety to your life. But Christ tells us that his burden is light. Well, how is his burden light? It's only because our hearts have been changed and redeemed and the power of the Holy Spirit living within us allows us to live a life that glorifies him, a life that demonstrates maturity as we are identified with Christ. Now, if you're in this room and you are a follower of Christ and you are a believer of Christ, but you don't walk in that way, then you experience also stress, anxiety, and conviction. And that conviction, that stress, that anxiety, because you're living in a way that's not consistent with who you are is actually a grace of God. Because if you could be a Christian and live in a completely different way, how would you know whether you were a Christian or not? How would you understand or experience the joy of the Christian life? So if you have repented of your sins, put your faith in Christ, but your walk is completely in the opposite direction, you should experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You should experience stress. You should experience sleepless nights. You should experience anxiety, and you should thank God for it. That God is not allowing you to run away from him, but instead he's using those things to draw you to him. So in chapter four, it starts off with the preface to the entire rest of the chapter. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk. Now, this word walk is important. We had a foreshadowing of walk in Ephesians chapter two. In Ephesians chapter two, verse two, it talks about our former walk and how we walked in the ways of the world. In Ephesians chapter two, verse 10, it talks about how now being raised from death to life, we are to walk in Christ. So here we're returning back to that theme based upon salvation, that you're to walk worthy. You're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of his gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, building up the body of Christ. Note the use of the body of Christ here is as a focus in our text until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness 
and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Here's the central idea of our text this morning. God calls us to walk in spiritual maturity. Paul writes this to us. It's God calling us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to walk. That word that's in Ephesians 2 is gonna show up here in chapter four, verse one, in chapter four, verse 17, in chapter five, verse two, verse eight, and verse 15. So we're gonna see it over and over again. To walk, or if you're reading out of the NIV, is to live. It's talking about how we live our lives, how we walk through this life. We're to do so in a way that has spiritual maturity. God calls us to walk in spiritual maturity. Our first point for this morning is unity in the body of Christ. We see this in verses one through six. So our text here today is gonna call us to some really hard things. It is a difficult text. It calls us to walk in unity. And yet we look around in society and we see division. It calls us to walk and balance truth and love. And yet we look around society and we see an inappropriate balance on one side or the other. So today we have a difficult text teaching us how to walk a careful, narrow path that is worthy for the calling that we have been called. And we begin by talking about unity. The call that we have been called to. You can't be a pretender and live it. You can't rely on somebody else and live it. So how do you live it? How do you look at yourself and say, how am I to grow? How am I to be discipled? What should I look at in my own life to say I'm making progress? And here Paul's gonna give us five characteristics or five virtues. These five virtues promote unity. So why is it so hard to maintain unity in our culture? Honestly, because it's so hard to maintain these five characteristics in our own lives. When you look at these characteristics, look at what it says here. Verse two, with all humility, do people describe you as proud, arrogant, egocentric, boastful? We don't have unity because we have a society that's often too prideful, too arrogant, too boastful. C.S. Lewis in his famous quote said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. When we think of humility, we think Philippians 2. Christ in heaven, who has it all, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. That wasn't the ultimate goal, but he humbled himself and he humbled himself to the point of obedience, even to the point of death on a cross for our sake. So that as we look at Christ, we should look around and say, I need to work on my own humility. But we recognize that humility is something that's difficult to achieve. So in your spiritual walk, in your walk to maturity, in Discipleship 101, do you have the virtue of humility? Are you growing in humility? Do you recognize that God has given you every gift, nothing is in and of yourself? Do you recognize how sinful you are, how in need of mercy and grace you are, how much you need to emulate Christ in humility? Gentleness. Some would call this word meekness, but meekness has come to mean weak in our culture. And that's not the right meaning of the word. Moses was described as one who was meek in Numbers 12, three, 
We see gentleness or meekness in Galatians 6, 1, 2 Timothy 2, 25, Galatians 5, 23, Colossians 3, 12. It's throughout scripture that we are to be gentle. When you think gentle, think of a domesticated animal. Think, in my mind, of a big, powerful horse. A horse that was used in history to charge into battle. Not weak, but under control. A horse that could be ridden. A horse that was tame in some sense of the word. And yet, a horse that had very much power, strength, patience. Is your fuse long or is it short? Bearing with one another. Do you tolerate others? Do you tolerate your roommate and their idiosyncrasies? Love. All right, so here's your questions. Let me give you some application questions just to help explain this. Number one, are you humble or prideful? You know the answer to that question. And you honestly know that the answer to that question really varies throughout different days at different times and different moments. There are times where all of us allow our own pride to creep in. And when we do, we should recognize it. We should see it. We should know that that's not a sign of spiritual maturity, but that that prideful, boastful arrogance, wherever we have it or however we portray it, if we allow that to creep in our heart, that's going to be a problem. Are you gentle or harsh? Sometimes just the way we say things, the tone that we say it with, the words that we choose, the body language that we have communicates things that we may not intend to communicate. Are you gentle? Are you patient or do you want immediate gratification? I have to have it and I want it right now. I'm not going to wait. So many different applications to our spiritual walk that this can go to. Do you bear with one another's faults or do you quickly grow angry and frustrated at their peculiarities? And do you recognize your own? Sometimes we expect others to hear something one time and to get it and to never do it again. I don't like it when you do this. Don't ever do this again. But then we look in the mirror and how many times have we had to hear things before we actually had them take root in our heart, before we actually had them catch on so that we understood something? Do you look at others and have a different standard than you have for yourself? Do you look at others and want the law to be judged on them and look in the mirror and want grace to be judged on yourself? How often is it that we hold them to, I told you about this, why don't you get it? You're just thick-headed. Instead of looking in the mirror and saying, you know what, I'm more thick-headed than most of you are. Spiritual maturity. If you have it, you're gonna possess humility, gentleness, patience. You're gonna bear with one another. You're gonna love one another. Why don't we have unity? Because very few of us have these five characteristics on a consistent basis. It's not just about these characteristics. Look what he says next. He says in verse three, eager. Now the word eager is an emphatic present participle. It's emphatic. We must seek it. We must continuously seek to maintain the unity. Now, when I see the word maintain here, my first thought is that I expect to see the word achieve. We should achieve unity because when I look around at society, I don't see unity, but the word that's written here is a word based off of what's already happened in chapter two to the latter half is that we maintain it. God has granted us unity. He has broken down the walls of division. He has brought together the Jew and the Gentile. So we have unity, but we have it in an eschatological sense that we are unified and one day in heaven we will be unified. And the text here is telling us to maintain that unity. 
So how do we maintain that unity? There's five characteristics or virtues are helpful, but he moves here as he discussed this into seven mentions of the word one. Beliefs that we must hold. Beliefs that would promote genuine unity. Theological unity. We see these in verses four through six. And there's no verb in these statements. So in your translations, the word there is has been inserted so that it makes better grammatical sense. But look at what it says here. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. You see in this the seven mentions of the word one. You see in this the mention of the Trinity as well. We have one body, that one body being the church because we have one spirit. Now, here that one body, referencing perhaps the universal church that we are all who have been redeemed of all ages belong to, but yet then maintaining that unity has to exhibit in the visible church because that unity is already there in the universal church. And so he's talking to us simultaneously about what happens in the church as an aggregate and in your local assemblies. We have one spirit. There is only one Holy Spirit. We have one hope. That one hope relates to the fact that there is only one Lord. It's one faith. And this is where our unity seems to break down when we start talking about theological beliefs. One baptism. Now, baptism, what does it mean here? Some of the commentaries will tell you it means spirit baptism that happens upon salvation. I believe it probably means water baptism because it's included in the section where it talks about having one Lord. And so that water baptism is our public profession of the inward decision that we have made, which brings unity to all of us. We profess that we are Christians and we are joining that local assembly that we're professing that, that faith to. And so it unifies us together. One baptism. And we're all part of one Christian family because we have one God and one Father. Unity. It gets really difficult. You start looking at the different beliefs and we know and we realize that it's really hard to talk about beliefs in the same context that we talk about unity because it's frequently the beliefs that end up dividing us. But what I want to say to you this morning is that if you put aside all of your beliefs for the sake of unity, you don't have true unity. I say it this way, unity without truth is not true unity. If we believe something entirely different and yet we're going to say we're unified, how long till we actually discuss what we believe? And that affects that unity. If somebody doesn't believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, how long can I be unified with that person? And so there's a balance to walk here. And this is where those five virtues or characteristics come into place. As we're talking about our theological beliefs, are we talking about them with humility? Are we talking about them with gentleness? Are we having patience with others as we present those beliefs to bring them along and talk about this? Are we looking to see if our beliefs line up with what the text of Scripture says? Unity does not mean that we are all identical, though. There can be some diversity in the unity. You think about an orchestra. I was watching as the orchestra played last night. And you have a conductor up front. You know how this works. And the conductor, I love watching the conductor. I love watching a conductor who loves to conduct. Have you ever seen a conductor that loves to conduct? They put a little something extra into it. You know, you, you get somebody that's just up there and they're just like. But you get somebody that really likes it. And, and they've got the little pointy wand, which I really want one of those. I think they're cool. I think they're expensive too, but I think they're cool. And, and I was watching 
I was watching Chet. He was, he was doing it. He gets his legs into it. Do you, have you seen it when he's conducting? I mean, he gets, it's into it. It's going. And I'm, and I'm just sitting down there on the front row and I'm smiling. I'm like, yeah, that's somebody using their gifts for God's glory. I like it. I don't have a clue how to do any of this, but it, it works, right? They're going to teach me. I'm going to do one song sometime 20 years from now. All right. Now, what would happen if one of the instruments over here, the violin was sitting about right here. So what if the violin just decided, I'm going to play whatever song I want to play. I'm going to do my own thing. I imagine that the conductor standing right here would look over to the violinist and go, I don't know if that's the official sign for cut it out in music, but that would work, right? You get it. You don't do your own thing. You're part of a larger group that works and functions together. And when we work and function together well, under the orchestration of one maestro, we play beautiful music. In the body, when we have these five characteristics or virtues and we have the right beliefs and we work and function well together under the leadership of one Lord and one God, we play beautiful music. And when we get prideful or arrogant, impatient, selfish, jealous, it's like a violin playing all by itself. When everybody else is playing a different song, it doesn't work. Point number two in our text is ministry and maturity in the body of Christ. So first we talk about unity in the body of Christ. Now we're gonna look at ministry and maturity in the body of Christ. There's a section here that we could literally spend an entire message on, but we're not. I'm just gonna skim right past verses seven through 11 and tell you what they are. So here in verse seven, it says, grace was given to each one. There's a movement from the common whole to each one to the measure of Christ's gifts. There's a quote here of Psalm 68. Some in your Bibles at the bottom, it will reference Psalm 68, 18. I don't think this is an exact quote of Psalm 68, 18. I think this is a reference to the entire chapter of Psalm 68. If you look at the textual differences there, I think you'll find that. You see here that Paul is interpreting this Christologically. He's saying basically that Christ is the victor who has ascended and conquered his foes. Who are the foes? Perhaps the foes refer back to Ephesians 1, 20 through 22, the principalities and powers. He has taken the victims captive. Who are the captives? Those who were captive to sin, those who were captive to the devil. They're not necessarily now captive to Christ, although we could characterize ourselves that way. They are his. We belong to Christ. And so here what Paul is doing is he's referencing the entire chapter of Psalm 68, and he's basically saying that Christ was the victor. Christ was the one who was victorious. He descended to this earth. He was victorious. He then ascended, and because he ascended, he has all of these gifts he can then distribute to his local church. As he distributes these gifts to his church, that's how he's going to bring and unite all things to himself. Now, even the section on what does it mean that he descended? There's three different views of that. The church fathers would have said he descended into hell. Calvin would have said it was a contrast between heaven and earth. Others would simply say it's a description of the humiliation and the exaltation. But the main point is this. What Paul is saying here is that Christ is given gifts and he's able to because he's victorious. As he is victorious, he can do whatever he wants. He has conquered death. He has conquered hell. He has conquered the devil. He has conquered sin. He has redeemed us. He has unified us. And now he's going to give gifts to us for the local church so that we can build up the body of Christ. So we move to verse 11 the gifts that he has given to the local church. Look at what he says he's given here. He's given apostles, prophets, evangelists, 
and shepherds. And you'll notice after the and, most of your translations, if you're using the ESV, don't include the article before teachers. That's because there is no article in the original language before teachers. So this is four, maybe five, but at least four different offices. We look at these briefly. Apostles, what does it mean? Should we be looking for apostles today? Apostles, in one sense of the use of the word, means anyone that's sent. We're all sent, but that's not the use of the word that Paul is using here. You'll remember that he has already referenced back earlier in this book that the apostles and the prophets were given for the foundation of the church. We have the apostles, meaning capital A apostles, those who have seen the risen Christ. We have their testimony in the New Testament. There's no need for those type apostles any longer. We have the New Testament. Prophets. In the common sense of the word, we use this today to talk about someone who speaks prophetically to society or to politics or to religion or to culture. You, you can use that word to say someone speaks prophetically about their own time. But in the capital sense of the word, a prophet was someone who spoke for God, in the place of God, thus saith the Lord, speaking and prophesying about what would happen. We no longer have a need of those type prophets because the canon is closed, because we have the Old Testament and we have the New Testament, and we are told that we have the faith that was once delivered for all. It is sufficient. So we have apostles and we have prophets that were gifts to us, and they are gifts to us through the word of God that we have to read the New Testament and the Old Testament. We thank God for these gifts. We have evangelists, and some of us would really like to say, oh, there's a gift of evangelism and I don't have it, so I don't have to do it. You can't do that. You have to share your faith. In fact, it tells us in 2 Timothy 4, 5 that all should do the work of an evangelist. But yet we recognize we recognize sometimes even with envy for somebody like myself that there are people who can clearly articulate the gospel and issue a call. I like to call them harvesters because when they say something that's basic and plain and call forth for people to come, people come out of the woodwork to be saved. And sometimes it's frustrating for, for theologians and all to, to say, I've said that same thing a hundred times. They get up there and say that one time and they call and people respond. And you know what that reminds us? is that it's not about us, it's about the Holy Spirit doing work in the hearts and lives of men and women. It's God's job to give the increase. We just water, we plant, we sow, we work faithfully. God gives the increase as God chooses to. If you have that gift, use it well. We need more and more evangelists, church planners, and missionaries in today's society. Shepherds and teachers, no definite article on the teachers. So what is he saying here? Well, we should have shepherds. We recognize that Jesus was referred to as the good shepherd, that Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep in John chapter 21. So when you leave this place and you're looking for a local church, you should look for someone who is a shepherd and who is a teacher. You want a shepherd, someone that knows the sheep, someone that is good at shepherding your life and stewarding your walk, someone that will bring correction should you need correction. And you also want to make sure that you have someone who can teach us. Perhaps not all teachers are good shepherds, but all good shepherds, pastors, or overseers should be good teachers. He gave good gifts to us. We look for churches that have those good gifts. And for what purpose? We're told here in verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. This is the purpose of the church. What, what type of church do I look for when I leave Cedarville? Here's your verse. Underline this verse, star this verse, memorize this verse. This is the verse you want. And this is not the verse that every church lives by. 
In fact, there's even a theological distinction in history here with two different ways this verse is even seen. You have a Catholic perspective, which really argues for a strong clergy-laity divide. The clergy's up here, the laity's down here. The clergy can read the text. They understand the text. They've studied all the Greek and the Hebrew, and they know all of this. You haven't done all that. You shouldn't understand the text or read the text. You don't know what you're talking about because you're not an expert in the field. That's just wrong. Because we have the Holy Spirit in our lives that allows us to understand the text of Scripture. Now, I'm not saying to you don't study Greek, Hebrew, don't get all the education you possibly can, but don't ever feel like you're the only one that can interpret the Bible for somebody else. The Catholic perspective would say this, and it would divide these texts and say that ministers are to equip the saints, ministers are to do the work in the ministry, ministers are to build up the body. This is professionalism in our society. You hire somebody to fix your car, you hire somebody to do your air conditioning, you're gonna hire somebody to do the spiritual work of the church and you're gonna sit back in the pew as a consumer and say, you do the job and if you don't do the job well, we'll fire you and get somebody else like a new head coach in the NFL. That's not what the text is saying. The text is saying that it's the jobs of the ministers to equip the saints. That's all of us to equip the saints to do the work of ministry and the building up of the body. In the text, there's actually a change in the preposition between the second phrase and the third phrase. The object of the first has the article, whereas the object of the second two do not. And the first few depends on an unlikely meaning of the word equip. So here's what I want to say to you. In the 16th century, we recovered the priesthood of the believer. In the 21st century, we must recover the ministry of every believer. Do you realize it's your job, no matter what your major is, that you are to do the building up of the body of Christ? You should find a church that wants to equip you so that you can do works of service and build up the body. You should never wanna go to a church based purely off, does the music ministry make me feel good? Do they have good seats? Is the air conditioned right? Do I feel like it's a good consumer environment for me? You should wanna find a church based on whether they're gonna build you up to let you serve God and use your gifts for him well. Equip others for the building up of the body of Christ. You see here in verse 13, as it talks about too, until we all attain the unity of the faith, look at it, knowledge of the son of God and to mature manhood. Now I've gotta stop here and talk about mature manhood for just a moment. Oftentimes society wants to tell us mature manhood is what? It's being strong. I want to be strong. I, I want to be able to beat somebody up. I, I want to have a lot of money. I want to have power. Sometimes society gives us this awful image of what mature manhood is. So let's check it right here. We've got a mention of mature manhood in the text. What is mature manhood in the text? This glimpse that we are given of mature manhood and womanhood is to be like Christ. Knowledge of him, the fullness of him, our beliefs and our actions. Look at what it says as it goes on here. To the measure of the status of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children. So being a mature man or woman is you're no longer a babe. You no longer have to have somebody else feed you. You can feed yourself. You're not tossed to and fro by the waves. You're not carried about by every wind of doctrine. Every new blog you read that presents an extreme position does not appeal to you so that you automatically change your view back and forth based off every compelling writer. 
but you know what the Word of God says so much that you look at it and you go, that's an extreme view. That's not taking into account this, that, or the other. You're not blown to and fro. You're not in the waves like a ship being rocked back and forth, but you are steady in your walk pursuing God. You recognize that some of this, look at what it calls it. It's human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Do you recognize deceitful schemes when you see them? This is not your cultural definition of mature manhood, that you are stable, you are steady, you are theologically astute. And then it says here, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So your new definition of mature manhood should be, if I wanna be a man, I need to be more like Christ. This fits just as well for mature womanhood. If I wanna be a woman, if I wanna be a godly biblical woman, I need to be more like Christ. Everyone, a theologian, understanding the deceitful craftiness of human schemes. And then it says, speaking the truth in love. Now I've gotta spend some time on this too. Speaking is actually not in the original language here. It's actually truthing in love. Now, I know truthing in love sounds really awkward, and that's why we have speaking here. But when you take the word speaking out and you understand that this is talking about truth and love and truthing in love, then it provides a broader context. It actually applies to living, doing, thinking, saying, speaking, living, walking, acting with truth and love and balance. So this is an incredibly hard thing to balance. So I've got some questions for you here. Do you accept everyone while never speaking truth to them in the name of love? Society wants us to focus on love. Just love everybody and get along. Love wins. Is it really love though if we never speak truth? Is that genuine love or is that apathy? If I know you're wrong about something, and I really don't care that you're wrong about something, I'm not gonna take the time to confront you because that's gonna be a long conversation and it's gonna take up my time. So I'll just let you believe whatever you wanna believe. Say I love you and let you go on your way. But is that love? Or does genuine love have a desire to make sure you understand what truth is as well? Is this really about my desire or your desire to be liked more than a genuine love for others? If I never say anything that offends anybody, more people might like me. And I wanna be liked and I wanna be popular. So when it comes to the hard subjects, I'm just not gonna take a stand. I'm just gonna say, I don't know. I'm just gonna ride the fence because I love everybody. Does this cause you to compromise the truth? If you're too focused on love, your tendency is gonna be to be weak. But there is another side. And too often, especially in my own life, I tend to lean towards the other side. Do you speak truth to everyone because you can never compromise? You know, sometimes we're so focused on truth that we get prideful and arrogant in our truth. And when we're speaking truth, we're really speaking truth, not because it's truth and we love the other person, but because I'm gonna be right and I'm gonna win this debate and I'm gonna win this debate at all costs because I'm a better debater and smarter than you are. And so my truth is gonna reign over your truth. And that's not what this text is talking about. Do you love other people or do you just wanna be right? What role does humility play in your pursuit of truth? Are you quick to listen and slow to speak? James 1, 19. 
Is your tone, body language, and wording demonstrating love? In fact, I would say it to you this way. If you are so concerned about your truth that even your friends dislike the way you're saying the things you're saying, you're probably not living this out very well. Because I have people that I agree with. I agree with everything they're saying. But the way they're saying it is so wrong that I can't support them in what they're doing. Do you really love others or do you just wanna be right? If you're known more for what you're against than what you're for, that's a sign that there's probably a problem happening here. And that's why this is so difficult. There's an old saying that says, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And the hard part of life and spiritual maturity is that we're supposed to balance love and truth. And if I'm gonna speak truth into somebody's life, I need to love them, genuinely love them. And if I genuinely love them, I'm not gonna be apathetic when they're wrong. I'm gonna speak truth to them, but I'm gonna do it with those five virtues we talked about, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. And that's why this is hard. But God calls us to walk in spiritual maturity. That's the idea of our text. So how do you grow in discipleship? You focus on these characteristics. You focus on what you believe. You balance speaking the truth and love. You make sure you recognize the importance of the local church. And you constantly check yourself. Thanking God for the Old Testament, for the New Testament, pouring into his word, letting his word pour into you, praying for the spirit to convict you, to guide you, to help you walk in humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, yet speaking truth. Dear Lord, this is a hard text. It's a hard text for us to live out, and yet you've called us to a high standard. So Lord, today as we examine our own life, Lord, as we look forward as to how we can grow more mature in Christ, I pray that you would help us to apply these truths to our lives. Lord, in humility, I, I confess if I've said anything that's not helpful, I pray that you'd help everybody just to forget it quickly. But Lord, if there's something that needs to stick in my life or in the lives of others who are listening, I pray that you would help it to take root, that you would help us to take it seriously so that we may walk worthy of the call to which we've been called by the power of the Spirit, for the glory of your Son. And in his name I pray, amen. And you are dismissed.